0: Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another Mailbag, where I answer your concerns, your questions, your takes, and ultimately your comments about tennis and other things. I've posted in the YouTube community tab on the homepage of my channel. I've also tweeted, where you can follow me, at Gil underscore Gross is the handle. Um, This will conclude, this will wrap up. Australian Open 2021 coverage. It's always a good way to do so. I've thrown so many, so much content your way over the last two weeks and, or you know, now three weeks. And now it's kind of a, a chance to debrief and interact with you guys, which I always enjoy very much. Uh, a lot of good comments in here, and by popular demand, I, I hear you guys on YouTube saying that I need to put up the comments. That way, you can skip ahead to the next one. So I have done that. Uh, so. Let's get started. YouTube comments first, then I'll get to Twitter at the end. First one comes from Sunflowers of Inferno. Um, they they say, I know we all talk about Dominic Team being a physical monster. However, I have seen that every time he plays a long physical match, he becomes completely exhausted or injured in the next match. Examples are RG2020, AO2020, AO2021, Tour Finals, etc. Nole and Rafa at 34 look much more fit than Team. So, do you think that Team is really the physical monster everyone portrays him to be, or do you think that he's already starting to decline at the young age of 27? Well, let's go through those examples real quick, just to kind of address him. RG2020 would be the the quarterfinal loss to Diego Schwartzman, and then Australian Open last year would be the five-set final against Djokovic. Where I'm not sure if it's a completely on-point characterization to say he got exhausted, but he lost in the fifth set. And then this last Australian Open was the third-round defeat to Grigor Dimitrov, which I'll, I'll get into in more detail. And then the the tour finals, it was the final against Medvedev. I think that there's no denying in that match. He, he certainly got tired in that match and ultimately lost to Daniil Medvedev. Tour finals, I think, is a, a really difficult physical test for players to play every single day against a top eight player. And Medvedev by the end there, excuse me, team by the end there was uh, worn down for Medvedev. So I think your larger point is is kind of true, which is that we uh, we like to regard team as someone who is the you know, one of the fittest players on tour. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But if you're observing here that he's not necessarily a marathon man, I think you're correct. Now, in the most important match of his life, he did outlast his opponent. And Alexander Zverev started cramping. And not to say that team was physically at 100% by the end of that match. I don't think he was by any means. But... He held up better than his opponent. And of course, I'm talking about the U.S. Open final against Alexander Zverev. So I do want to throw that in there. Again, I think overall, you're correct. Team is a physical monster when it comes to his power, when it comes to his strength and how he packages that with his speed. And that in that respect, he really reminds me of kind of a, a prime Rafael Nadal, someone who's able to have a, an immense amount of mobility around the court, but but packages it with an unbelievable amount of power off the ground. So that's part of physicality. But then, of course, the other part of physicality is how long can you last? And certainly Dominic Team has not been a model of of endurance in in some of these matches. Um so what's the takeaway here well i think that his game is requires a tremendous amount of energy and i think that factors in but ultimately i think it's it's a pretty good observation and i can't really disagree with it other than it's a little bit nuanced because again he is still a physical monster even if he's not a marathon man now I think if you go example by example, though, you know, tour finals, I don't like to read too much into the the year-end final. Uh, Australian Open 2021, I, I think he was injured here. I think he had an injury, and I don't want to really hold that against him. AO 2020, not sure he was exhausted. Roland Garros 2020, I think he was exhausted coming into the tournament, and I think it was more mental than physical, just as much mental as physical. So... I can drum up an excuse for you in pretty much every single one. Uh, Do with that what you will. I don't think it's a bad observation, but uh, I I also think that it would probably be inaccurate to say that he has an endurance problem. I think that would be a little bit too far the other way. Ashwin Kumar. uh, Now that Novak has won on hard, what does he have to do to win on clay versus team slash Nadal? Is that even possible given uh, this stage in his career? Should he prioritize Wimbledon slash Olympics? I'm going to give you kind of the same answer. After Nadal beat Djokovic in three sets at the French Open final in 2020, it's kind of getting the same thing. Oh, what does this mean for when he plays Djokovic on hard courts? And my answer was kind of, I don't know if it means anything. Uh, I don't know that. I I I don't think this changes much and i don't think that this hard court triumph for novak changes much about his prospects on clay just like they didn't in 2019 what does he need to do to win on clay versus team slash nadal is the question uh it's going to be harder it's just going to be harder for him he does not have the same kind of advantages in the serve return dynamic in fact he he has kind of a disadvantage When the ball slows down, Team and Nadal have a tendency to have success being more aggressive on the return, and that's kind of taken away from Djokovic. So that's a dynamic that flips. Team has a lot more time and can hit through Djokovic, and his uh, his footwork is challenged. I think a lot more when it comes to the height of the ball. His flat strokes don't penetrate as much. The heavy topspin bothers him a lot more. It's just going to be harder. You know, I I don't think that Novak—here's my point on this. I don't think that Novak is going to do anything that is going to change the fact that it's going to be a a harder task for him to beat Team Nadal on clay. He's not going to alter his game. He's not going to shift something that's going to really change that fact. It's just technically he has hurdles, just like technically Nadal and team have hurdles against Djokovic on a quicker surface. There are technical hurdles. I don't think that's going to really change. Should he prioritize Wimbledon slash Olympics? Uh, I think he already does. Uh, Again, I I do think that the Olympics are going to be the main priority for him this year. I don't really know exactly what that looks like other than scheduling, but uh, I think he will prioritize the Olympics. This one from Dalia. Hi, Gil. This might be a silly question, but I was wondering how do you manage to be or come across as so unbiased, especially when it comes to the big three? How come you've never become a huge fan of one of them in particular? Do you never get super nervous before a match or super happy or sad after someone wins or loses? Or did you only get emotionally involved when it came to David David Ferrer? Well, I definitely think that being a supporter of da- of David Ferrer. And again, I think that players like Ferrer were part of the reasons why I liked tennis in the first place. Because as a a shorter athlete who played other sports, like baseball, for example, uh, people like Ferrer showed me that, not, not that I ever thought I was going to be a top 10 player in the world, don't get me wrong, but players like Ferrer showed me that, it, that Uh, my height was not going to get in the way of becoming a good player. And that's why I gravitated towards players like Ferrer and also just really appreciated how hard he worked on the court. And that's what got me behind him. And that's why I I, you know, really had a connection with Ferrer, right? Becoming a Ferrer fan, being a Ferrer fan, was definitely the reason why, before I ever did YouTube, um, why I was not a big fan of anyone in the big three. With that being said, what has really, you know, it would be, uh, and I, look, the best thing I can explain here is when you do what I do, when I am previewing and analyzing match after match after match, it it really takes the fan away from you. It it sucks it out of you. It, it just has that effect. And it'll be the same thing, you know, if... Um, um if you're a fan of a team and then you start to cover them and you sit in the press box right let's say you sit in the press box and you have to not cheer because there's no cheering in the press box your body is literally conditioning itself unconditioning itself to not cheer when something happens when when normally you would cheer right if you were a die-hard fan of I'm just going to say the New York Rangers my favorite hockey team. I love the Rangers. I I I yell when they score, right? If I had to cover them and I had to sit in the press box and suddenly when the Rangers scored, I didn't get to yell. That would literally change my mindset. <laughs> I like and I think a psychologist could explain to me exactly why, but I would know I would get conditioned um to not get excited when they score just by sitting in the press box and not cheering when they score. Does that make sense? So when I watch these tennis matches and I have to try to objectively figure out what's going on here and try to answer, you know, You know, there's no time for me to cheer. There's no time for me to root, Uh, you know, and when I'm making predictions, again, it would just be an impediment if I had some kind of emotional attachment, it would be very hard for me to do my job correctly. It just it would. So it's not difficult, you know, to not be a fan. And what I will say, what I will end, I'll end here. I root for who I pick. So, so don't get me wrong. I'm not watching a match. Sometimes I'm watching a match and I literally couldn't care less. Sometimes I'm watching a match and maybe I care a little bit, but not that much. Who wins? But most of the time I'm watching a match and I am rooting for my prediction to be correct. Like, doesn't that make sense? Right? I, I just want to be right. I don't want, I'd rather be right than wrong. So it, it's generally as simple as that. And you can pretty much assume that I don't care that much if I'm wrong. So like, don't I'm, I'm not going wild or anything as I'm watching a tennis match here. But you can pretty much assume that whatever I say is going to happen. I would like that to happen, and that's just so that's just because I hope I'm right. So <laughs> to 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 that point, just to take it one step further, imagine trying to do that and being a fan. Imagine if I loved, um, one, you know, if I loved Nadal, right, I was a huge Nadal fan, but then I picked Djokovic and then I watched it. Then I watched them play. That would be weird because then I would be rooting for myself to be wrong. Right. It, it wouldn't make sense. So in, in short, doing YouTube has detached me from fandom. The process of this has detached me even further. So it started as a Ferrer thing. And, and now it's completely long gone. And that's what it, I'll never be a Tsitsipas fan. I'll never be a Zverev fan. I'll never be a Medvedev fan. Uh, it won't happen as long as I do this because it, it just won't. This one from Andrew. What makes Andy Murray more successful than the rising generation? Uh, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, etc. Well, First of all, uh, we have much more data to work with when it comes to Andy Murray. And I do think it's a good thing to remember that Murray did not win his first major until he was 25 years old at the 2012 US Open. And you can talk about the level of competition, which I believe for Andy Murray was a lot higher than it is for uh, T- uh, Zverev, Titipas, and Medvedev, who are getting what I believe is uh, post-prime versions of... Djokovic, Nadal and Federer, I do not believe that they are better than they were in in 20, you know, uh, 2008 through again Federer it differs for all of them but uh, I'll just say 2008 through 2016. I believe that Murray got a more difficult version of Djokovic, Nadal and Feder without a doubt. So, with that being said, I think you have to go case by case. And I don't think it's fair to say that Murray is guaranteed to be more successful than those three. I really don't. Uh, Remember, I mean... I mean, I I think that all three of them have the potential to win more than three slams. All. Every single one. So, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. I don't... I don't... I'm not predicting... That all three of them equal Murray. In fact, that would be highly unlikely. But I'm just saying, let's not uh, let's not assume that Andy Murray will have a more sex- successful career than those three. In terms of play style, uh, Murray Murray is uh, pretty similar to Zverev and Medvedev. He's not so much like Pass, He's much more talented on the return and defense when it comes to zverev and medvedev um you know all three of them actually have weaknesses on the second serve and weaknesses on the forehand and they all have exceptional backhands and they're all really good move movers predicated on on movement i think murray's got a better forehand than medvedev to this point I think Murray is a much better player mentally than Zverev and a lot smarter tactically, way better point construction, uh, better hands as well. So those are some differences between Murray and Zverev. Murray and Medvedev, I, I really do find them to be very similar. Right now, I'd take Murray's forehand over Medvedev by a, quite a distance. So from YIV, Daniil is a kind of player who, if something is not working great on the court, Always tries to change something in his game and usually can get back in the match. But that wasn't the case in the finals. Still kind of unclear why that happened. Probably lots of reasons, but what do you think was the key factors? I think uh, the key factor was that he did not want that smoke. And when I say that, I mean I do not think he was ready to put in the work and suffer and go four or five sets. He felt the level that Djokovic was playing at. He understood how well that he would have needed to play in order to in order to have success against Novak's level. And the the calculation in your mind there is how hard is this going to be? And am I willing to actually work that harder or can my body take that? You know, am I going to be able to do this? And again, I think after the first set. I think he worked really, really, really hard. And I think he felt his gas tank was at a certain level that he didn't like very much, and he was down. So you start to make that calculation. How much do I have left? And wait a second, I still need to win three sets? I'm going to either need to go four or five? Oof. Daniil Medvedev panicked. What can you say? He panicked. He, uh, There was a certain point where I don't think he was doing a lot of thinking on the court because he was feeling it physically. He was panicking mentally. Novak was not giving him anything to kind of give him any kind of extra hope or a second life. And he needed to win the first set, plain and simple. Medvedev had no chance at winning this match if he didn't win the first set because he does not have the game to uh, shorten points. He does not have the fitness to go four or five at the highest level of intensity that he needs against Novak. Or he's not willing to suffer enough to go four or five sets against Novak at at a high enough intensity. So you saw his game change. I don't agree with you that he kept doing the same thing. I think you saw his game change. He got less patient. And that just wasn't a, a winning plan. So... I agree in some sense but I actually I fully agree. I don't think he was thinking out there, I think he was panicking. Let's not let's not sugarcoat it. All right, next one from SJ. In Nadal's losses these two these last two years, he's lost mainly only to top 10 players, but in every match it's felt like he's had to it's felt like he's had so many opportunities to win. Besides against Schwartzman and Zverev in 2020, two bad matches. He lost two tiebreaks to Team Gave away that match against Medvedev, gave this one to Tsitsipas. He blew a love 40 lead and lost a p- tiebreak to Djokovic at the ATP Cup last year. Lost three tiebreaks against team at Australian Open with multiple break advantages and lost a tiebreak to Federer at Wimbledon in a tight four setter. I've noticed a trend in all three of these losses. He can hold serve easily and look absolutely dominant, but then the mo but then the moment. Uh, There are some high pressure, then the moment there are some high pressure points or a tie break, he seems to start to feel exposed with no safe game plan. How can he really fix this? Is it mental or do we just have to accept that Rafa has to take a more risky approach to the game nowadays like Team and Federer do? Well, I think that Nadal was put in a pretty tough position when it came to to his development and he's reached a point where where he's very comfortable playing a certain way against lower level competition when it comes to shortening points and playing kind of first strike tennis with his forehand off the serve. He has become comfortable there. But let's not forget that when Nadal was younger, I still thought he was a pretty offensive player. you know I, I think to, to call him a defensive player, I think would be pretty inaccurate. With that being said, when he really needed to clamp down, In the pressure moments, he normally added margin, added topspin, safety, went into never miss mode, ran extra, extra hard, uh, made sure to hit forehands. And, you know, even if that meant using his footwork to get way into the uh, deuce side of the court. So he played a certain way, working extra, extra hard with his feet and making sure to never miss, and, you know, obviously defending his butt off. That was his reaction to the pressure. He always had his body. You know, it was never going to be, Rafa was so nervous, he couldn't move. No, never, right? He always had his movement. And ever since he's had to change his play style, you're seeing the results of that, where you're seeing identity crisis under pressure. Either he's not comfortable enough, to execute, and to play that high-risk, aggressive forehand when he needs it. And when I say high-risk, you know, I'm just saying, I, I guess I should maybe change that and say highly offensive because I don't think that Nadal is like playing bad shot selection, which sometimes can be associated with high risk. So uh, sometimes he's not comfortable playing that highly offensive forehand or, or he misses it and or, or the highly offensive um, first serve and he's had issues under pressure. I you know, this is uh this has been a very very clear trend ever since he's kind of had to rely on his legs less in these pressure moments. So, he needs to keep working at this um and I do think it's it's mostly mental but it's it's also physical because if he wasn't declining physically, he would not have to, you know, he wouldn't be faced with this identity crisis in the first place. And again, I, it, it's easy for him when he's not under pressure. It's easy for him when he's not playing Djokovic or he's not playing someone who who can really push him a little bit harder. And we'll get more to this Australian Open loss to Tsitsipas in particular. Uh, but I think this was, you know, that was a very physical loss. He lost because of his physicality, in my opinion. Yeah, he didn't win big points, but I think it was really tied to his conditioning. A a good comment, you know, and I think that you're, by identifying the trend, you're doing plenty there. There's not, you know, I can, I, I added to it, but... It's, it's more just recognizing the trend, understanding how he used to play under pressure, understanding he can't play that, that way under pressure anymore, and then understanding that he's been less effective under pressure ever since he's had to adjust his style. That's really the, the framework there. All right, this one from Allison. Do you think it was unfair that TV commentators and the media were speculating about Djokovic faking an injury slash engaging? in gamesmanship in this tournament. And why do you think this happens more towards Djokovic compared to the other members of the big three? I can't help but think that if Nadal won the AO this year despite his back injury, or if Federer won AO last year because despite his injury, they would be praised for overcoming adversity rather than attacked about their character and integrity. Well, I'm not going to address every single part of that content comment. Like, I'm not going to address... You know, the overarching theme of media bias or media favoritism towards Nadal and Federer. It's a massive topic that I'm not, don't feel like undertaking. But I will engage with the first part, which is uh, on Djokovic's injury. You know, I think the big problem here was not enough people were willing to say, I don't know. You know, I had a 49 minute analysis of Djokovic. Djokovic's win over Medvedev in the final. Not once did I bring up his oblique injury because it's completely irrelevant to me for the most part. I don't know much about it. Um you know, I'm not going to to harp on you know how how big the the strain was and you know how difficult uh, it was. Now, from what I saw You know, it was astonishing what he was able to do getting through the Taylor Fritz match and getting through the Milos Raonic match and then starting to find his rhythm against Varev in that quarterfinal after I still don't think he looked great in the first set, but then he really started looking good. From the semifinal and the final, I didn't think that it affected him, so I didn't feel the need to talk about it. But ultimately, you know, not enough people were willing to say, I don't know. And if I'm going to critique you know the media at large here, which I really don't like to do. I'd much rather people be specific here, because we generalize about the media, and it's like, what media? Do you mean people on Twitter? Do you mean uh, newspaper writers? Do you mean commentators? That's why I really don't like it when when we generalize the media. I'd much rather be specific. But um, if I if we're gonna fall into that trap and we're gonna say, what was the the issue with with people? Um, h- how? how the Djokovic injury was covered. Well, the most important thing you can say is, I don't know. If you ask me, you know, Gil, how impressive is it that that Djokovic won the Australian Open with an abdominal injury? I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Um, I can tell I did not. It did not appear to bother him for the last two matches. That's what I can tell you. I can tell you it did appear to bother him for the matches that I, that I mentioned previously. And he did a great job getting through those and serving incredibly well and, you know, not giving up, which he could have. And that's it. Got to be able to say, I don't know sometimes. Have to. Next comment is from Priya. Many players who went deep in the tournaments right before the Australian Open crashed out early. Sinner, Struff, Evans, Oje Aliassime. Did the lack of rest affect them? Do you think the quarantine was the reason why so many players, both men and women, women were injured? Uh, there were especially a large number of ab injuries. Do you think that if tournaments cannot take place without a mandatory 14-day quarantine, then they shouldn't take place at all because the quality of matches were really poor in this Grand Slam when normally most players are healthy for the Aussie Open? I don't know that, look, there were way too many injuries. It detracted from the event. Now, there were countless matches that we were obviously kind of robbed of because of uh, the quality of the event. And then, you know, we saw some players seemingly unable to recover from long matches. Um, you know, there were a lot of issues. Let's let's not sugarcoat it. There were a ton of health issues. It did detract from the tournament. Uh, to address the whole 14-day quarantine thing, the answer is, if it's not a major it's completely infeasible. The the risk, not the risk, the sacrifice is not worth the reward. So the only reason why Australia could make it work is because Australia is a major. And that's why it was worth it to go through the 14-day quarantine. These players get bigger paychecks at these four grand slams than they do anywhere else, even if they lose it in the first round. I'm talking about the um, lower-level, tour-level players Specifically, okay? These players need to play majors. That's where they're getting there. That's where they're making the money. So that's why the quarantine worked. But the larger point is that players who went deep prior to the Aussie uh, at the 2 two fifty events and the ATP Cup did not fare well at the major. And this was true for the U.S. Open as well. If you look at the players who went deep at the Western and Southern the week prior— the reason why I, I selected this comment is because I think that the top players need to take a, a long, hard look at this. This is a, a clear trend to me. It's clear as day. The players who are making the final and playing into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then playing the major you know, in these bubble events, they are not doing well in the major. Now, for some of these players, take like a, a Dan Evans, um, a Jan-Lenard Struff, and even a Yannick Center. For, for most of these players, actually, it's going to be probably worth it making a final or or winning a title, perhaps. I think that's it's probably going to be worth it. You know, FAA obviously got another crack, crack at a final. He didn't win it, right? But, you know, most of those players will probably take it but there's going to there's gonna reach a, a certain point, a certain level on tour, and I think these players need to really uh, look at what's happened at these two majors and really consider not playing the week before. You know, there's a reason why Winston-Salem is not a strong field before the U.S. Open. And there's a reason why John Isner, despite being from that area, played it for a lot of years, became frustrated with his U.S. Open results, and stopped playing it. It's not ideal to play the week before a major. And I think that players, the, the top players, really need to strongly, strongly consider sitting these events out. It's going to be hard because, you know, and, and hopefully we don't need to deal with this again because scheduling-wise, it's not normally like this. But if we do, it's really something to consider because it's, it's becoming pretty clear that you don't want to play too deep You know, if you're going to play a major the next week, then you might want to lose. Um, You might not want to go to the second week or excuse me. You might not want to go to the weekend in your warm-up event the week prior. All right. Now we're on to the Twitter questions. New Day says you've expressed some skepticism regarding Medvedev's ability to replicate his scorching hot 2019 summer run and his ability to remain in the top five for the foreseeable future. Do you now believe he is by far the best of the rest or at the very least on par with team? I still don't believe that. And I don't believe that I was really, I don't believe I've been proven wrong about Medvedev. I think that my concern with Medvedev and concern is too strong a word. Here's my direct quote. Here's what I said about Daniil. And I think it still applies. I said, don't pump the brakes on Daniil Medvedev just tap them. That's what I said after the 2019 summer run. Or going. In, that's what I said going into 2020. It's, look, Daniil's a very good player. Very, very good. He can do incredible things in his career. His, his assets are unlike anything I've ever seen. But there are also issues. That's it. I stand by that. And those issues manifest themselves in surface uh, versatility issues. He is a, so far in his career, a very surface-dependent player who I believe shows very clear uh, reasoning behind that. So, you know, for example, Naomi Osaka has had all her great results on hard court. She has not been good on clay. She has not had the chance to really be great on grass, but she's a player who... To me, it, it's it's going to click on the other surfaces. I, I think that that's pretty evident because I just don't see a lot of reason why it won't. But Medvedev, there are clear technical things going on that are going to really hinder him. The slower and the slower a surface gets, and the higher bouncing a surface gets, the worse he is going to be. And th- there are just that that just has to do with clear technical flaws that he has or, or technical weaknesses. So. Let's see how he does. Right now, every single tournament in the entire calendar that is either on indoor hard or is on a somewhat speedy hard court, Daniil Medvedev has done exceptionally well on. And he had a a shortened clay court season last year, didn't really have the time to to build himself up there. Uh but again, had showed some some vulnerability. And obviously there hasn't been grass court season. I think he's going to be really good on grass. And uh, I, I, I'm i a fan of him on Wimbledon, but for Wimbledon rather. But we got to see, you know. I, I have questions about him on slower, high-bouncing surfaces. I have questions about him uh, in best of five against elite opponents when he faces adversity. That's it. So, yeah. Um, the question, do you believe he is by far the best of the rest or at least uh, at least on par with team? Yeah, I I do believe that he is you know pretty much on par with team. Um not quite, I'd say a fraction a fraction below team. But I don't think he's really separated himself all that much. Uh, I don't. I think on a fast hardcore he is unbelievable. He's tremendous. But just let's just remember, you know, my my critiques of Medvedev are not what he can do on a fast hard court. I think there's no disputing what he can do on on a fast low bouncing court. So, let's see how he does on the other surfaces. And then and then there's going to be the major hump, which is the same hump that that team, you know, had to knock on the door for a couple years with and arguably is still um in, in some way has more hurdles to to overcome. Obviously, I'm not taking anything away from him, but uh, I think he'll still, before he retires, he'll want to have that big win over Djokovic, Nadal, or uh, to a lesser extent, Federer in a in a major final. I think Team will still want that before he retires. So you know he, he's still going for that one. Um, you know Medvedev still needs to clear that still needs to clear that hurdle, and we saw there's. I think that there are some significant uh, significant steps that he needs to take before he'll, he'll be ready to do that. From Jeff, question, what specifically could Medvedev do to improve his game on clay, and how good could he reasonably get on clay, in your opinion, if he did, what would you uh, – wait. How good could he reasonably get on clay, in your opinion, if he did what uh, you recommended? Oh, I, I get it. I see what you're saying. Well – uh, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think it's going to be an uphill battle because there there would have to be a somewhat drastic change in the dynamic of his forehand and just the, the way that shot is deployed. And from a technical standpoint, you know, you take a quirky shot like the Daniil Medvedev forehand, um, quirky technique, the results is that he doesn't love to generate pace. So how is that going to change on a slower surface when he doesn't have as much pace to work with and when it's a a court surface that's more difficult to hit through that doesn't really take well to his flat hitting and um, generally forces him to hit balls sometimes above his shoulder where he's a little bit weaker? All those things together makes his forehand a much bigger problem, a much bigger weakness than it is on other surfaces than it is on a quick surface. How likely is that forehand to really change? Man, I mean, is Borna chorich who's always had kind of a forehand technique that was always kind of too long and just didn't wasn't good on on so good on quicker surfaces because he gets rushed on that side or uh, Karen Hachjanov's forehand which has the same issue too long, uh, Western grip, difficult to play with, uh, on fast surfaces. You know, these things are, are really hard to change, really hard to change. So I think for Daniil Medvedev to improve his game on clay, I think he needs to get physically stronger. Uh, cause I don't see his technique changing. I don't think it should change because there are some positive aspects to how he hits the ball. You know, he's still consistent. He still has really good depth. His ball stays really really low. These are good things. His forehand isn't just bad, you know, that would not be a a, a proper blanket to to place on his forehand. His forehand has very very specific shortcomings that are exacerbated on slow surfaces. In order for those things to change, I do think that he just needs to get stronger. Just needs to get stronger. I don't see the technique changing, and I don't think it should change. So that's the short answer. From Saddam, after that heartbreaking loss to Chorich in the U.S. Open, Tsitsipas has now made back-to-back Grand Slam semifinals on two different surfaces. Do you think this is the year when he starts consistently making semis and finals in Grand Slams? I've always thought that it was a no-brainer that we were going to get to this point for Pas. He has always had a, a dangerous enough game to challenge anyone in the world. He just wasn't playing big points well, but he wanted it so bad. He, he was an analytical guy. He has good character. He had a, a strong will. He has a strong will to to be great and accomplish big things in this sport so it was always easy for me to to have faith in him and to back him and my my answer to this is, is yes i think that he is going to get there i think he the consistency is on its way i think it's very close to to happening i don't see any reason to to argue the other way It's mostly mental for him. There, you know, he he might run into some bad matchups. I think big servers could still bother him in a big way. There are still going to be matches where he's not putting his return in the court, and it's going to be very frustrating for him. But other than that, especially if he gets the right draw at these Grand Slams, and then on clay, I think he's, you know, becomes more indestructible. And I think uh, at the U.S. Open, I'd expect big things out of him as well. I expect to see consistency out of Pass. Here's one from Kozlov. Huge bit from the post-match press conference with very little coverage. Novak said that now that he secured his spot on most weeks number one, he will now be revising his schedule to favor even more um, Grand Slams. Which and how many Masters one thousands will he play this year? Um, hmm. Ooh, that was a, a much needed sip of water. Um, I, I don't want to predict his schedule really, but he's going to he's going to really prioritize the Olympics, as I said earlier every indication has suggested that he's going to do that. You know, even playing Tokyo in 2019 and just as much as he he's just said it, you know, it's 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 the missing piece for him. He's going to prioritize that. So so keep that in mind as well with these Masters 1000s, but I mostly included this comment because I I do think that it's an interesting bit from the press conference. And it is something to keep an eye on. So remember, I mean, he has won every Masters one thousand event. So I think he'll probably want to finish with more Masters titles than Nadal and, and Federer. I do think that that could motivate him. That's kind of another race, and, and right now uh, he is he is there. Right? Sorry if I if I don't have that right. But I'm pretty sure that he pretty sure he's there. Um see that just goes that just goes to show you the things I'm 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 mostly focused on. But yeah, l- l- let's see what he does. Let's see what he does. Couple more here. Uh this one from Mason. Do you see Djokovic in search of slams in late age, following the footsteps of Nadal and Fetter with more aggressive ground strokes, more frequent net play? Uh, to go along with bigger and more accurate serves, or will he remain the prototypical baseline for the rest of baseliner for the rest of his career? I would say we're already seeing these things. A hundred percent, we're already seeing these things. The big difference, you might say, well, Djokovic is still grinding, and I can show you 20 points against Medvedev in the Australian Open final, where Novak is is grinding with Medvedev. And he looks like he looks like someone who's wants to dig in and outlast. I can show you twenty points, but he's not doing it point in and point out anymore. He can't. He doesn't want to. He's not interested in it. He shouldn't be interested in it. That's the difference between a, a 2015 to 2011 version of Novak Djokovic and now. It's not that Novak can't play a long rally now. It's not that when he's not in great shape and highly motivated that he can't do some, some grinding. Of course he can, but is he going to do it every point? Can he do it three points in a row? Can he do it seven out of ten points? No, he's not doing that anymore. He has it in his back pocket, and that's good, but ultimately we are already seeing the transformation of his game. We are already seeing him shorten points, and change the way he plays. I think that there is more aggression in his game on a shot-by-shot basis. I think the rally aggression is simply higher. But most of all, it is um, the serve to go along with the forehand. And I think the one thing that Djokovic will really be embracing is the the big second serve. I know that Novak has a great admiration for Pete Sampras— and I, I think that you can draw a lot of parallels between Djokovic and, and Sampras. And that is one thing that Pete did later in his career to not only play, obviously, the short points off the first serve. That's easy. That comes naturally. But the way that that Pete started to take some pressure off himself was to go a little bit bigger on the second serve and to train himself to do that. I think that Djokovic has made an effort over the last uh, over the course of the last two years to do that. I think we saw that. In this tournament, not so much against Medvedev, but against other players. And I do believe we will continue to see that. The drop shots were a huge storyline last year. Look, that will still be a, a part of his game, and he will use that to shorten points. The Federer short chip cross court is one that he's enjoyed against players like RBA and Medvedev, who don't, he he doesn't really want to trade backhands with. So we are, we are going to see it. Here's the question. The question is, is Novak going to add power? And I'm not, you know, like he's added it in his serve. And that's going to be the X factor. If he can add power, you know, that can really change the calculus for him when it comes to even what he can do on clay, in my opinion. And, you know, will he uh, will he develop a, an even greater ability to use the forehand? as a, a means of early offense that will be interesting for me to see i'm not i'm not sure i'm not quite positive about that excuse me i feel a a sneeze coming on here oh maybe not i'm gonna try to get through this comment uh it's in need of an internship what a twitter name somebody give this man an internship do you think Nadal is done in hardcourt slams? His body almost always breaks down in hardcourt slams over the past two to three years. And what is the significance of Stefanos beating Nadal in best of five in the broader overview of Nadal's career? I'm, I'm glad we, we're getting to the, the last part of this question because I'm, I'm I'm throwing this one out. I don't think we should read into this one. Like, let us not forget the circumstances here. Let us not forget that Nadal played zero matches coming into this tournament because he couldn't, because his back was not good enough to play ATP Cup. And that means that if he was not healthy enough to play practice matches, um, or excuse me, if he was not healthy enough to play real matches, then he wasn't healthy enough to play practice matches at 100%, which means that he was not playing at 100% intensity leading up to this tournament. And it was it was incredibly strange to see Nadal tire as quickly as he did against Tsitsipas. He is generally in better condition. So this is not, uh, this was an exception of the rule. This was an outlier. Um, my conclusion is that Nadal was not ready to be his best at the 2020 Australian Open. And, he fought incredibly hard against Ttpas credit to nadal for playing so so well really in the final two sets against stefanos and serving really well and uh playing good first strike forehands uh plus one forehands i should say credit to him for doing that to almost mask the uh the physical condition that he was in he really did almost mask it. And it was not you know, clear as day. And he still played good tennis. And he, he could have beaten Tsitsipas at the level he was playing. Credit to Stefanos for for playing too well to allow Nadal to to kind of grit his way through that match. But he did not have what he would normally have there. And normally it takes a lot more for Nadal to, to get physically tired. So I, I take zero significance out of Nadal's loss to Tsitsipas here. I, I, I think it's great for Tsitsipas. But Nadal wasn't ready to win this tournament coming in. He just wasn't. Medvedev, I'm fairly confident, would have beaten him in the semifinal. Fairly confident. All right, we will end on this one from Dude. When do you think we're going to see new faces going deep at Wimbledon, and who will they be? Man, I almost feel like uh, this is like it's kind of early to be talking about this because now I'm sure I'll get asked the same question in two months Medvedev has been my answer to this question for a really long time. I think it's very, very unfair to to kind of say like, hey, uh, what's going on with the Zverev, Titipas, Medvedev, and uh, Rublev generation? Why aren't they doing well on grass? What, what's happening here? Uh, I just don't think that's fair because they didn't even get last year to remedy that. And a lot of them, Zverev notwithstanding, who has been at kind of the same level now for years and years and years. Um, Zverev notwithstanding, I don't think that's really fair to those guys. But I will say that uh, I think that Medvedev can be exceptional at Wimbledon. I think that Andre Rublev can be exceptional at Wimbledon with what he brings on the serve and the forehand side. His compact sp- strokes and his tendency to take the ball early and the way that he thrives in the fast-paced baseline game. Um, I really like the Russians at Wimbledon and that's, uh, who I'm really looking forward to seeing. All right, let's do a quick tease of the content and then I will wrap up. Obviously Monday match analysis, a 49 minute breakdown in depth, the most in depth on the internet of Djokovic's victory over to Medvedev. What went down in that match? Why did it play out the way it played out in such one-sided fashion? On Wednesday, I spoke with Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink of tennis.com. That was a great conversation about 45 minutes. Um great for great for uh, podcast platforms as well. Steve is uh is tremendous and um we we really covered everything on the men's side of the 2021 Australian Open. So, Uh, Remember that Monday Match Analysis, in addition to the mailbag, is available on all podcast platforms, leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for getting me to 8,000 subscribers. Appreciate all the support and uh, appreciate all you guys just in general. That will uh, do it for Australian Open coverage in 2021. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and I will see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean the mini-fridge. It's a mini-fridge, yeah, It's a mini-fridge. Fr- mini yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcast. Yes.